And so I'm enormously impressed by narrative uh, and I'm fascinated. So, so, you know, so I'm drinking this thing and already the wine has a leg up. You know, it's like, this is, this is, this is special. Hello and welcome to Disgorged, a fun and spirited look at the world of wine and drinking. I'm your host, Zach Jabal. Coming up, a conversation with award-winning novelist Nick Harkaway about the joys of cooking at home, the pleasures of wine with a story, and how to write endings. If you also enjoy wines with a story and want to try more of them, check out my website, vinetrainings.com, that's vine with a V, or find me on social media at zjabal, that's Z-G-E-B-A-L-L-E. More with Nick in a moment, but first, a thought. What's the best way to write about wine? I think we've all read enough florid and rapturous descriptions on the back of bottles to last a lifetime, but a substance as magical as wine also can't just rely on the most basic language to describe it. Sommeliers and other wine professionals have our own jargon, but talking about wine in terms of terpenes, pyrazines, and mercaptans can kind of kill the magic in its own way. So how do we square that circle? Every writer has their own style. And I think it's important to constantly be re-examining our writing to make sure that we maintain the requisite level of reverence while not going off the deep end. It's also important to remember that the story of a wine can be as interesting as the actual experience of drinking it. That's one of the reasons why I love wines like Champagne, Madeira, and Sherry so much. The story behind their invention is rife with intrigue and improbability. Yet in the end, the point of a wine is to be delicious and enjoyable. And no matter the incredible story behind it, a bad wine is still a bad wine. While every bottle tells its own story, sometimes you might want to drink war and peace, and other nights all that matters is that they lived happily ever after. Joining me today on Disgorged is Nick Harkaway, award-winning author of three of my favorite books and an upcoming novel uh, later in 2017. Nick, thanks so much for your time. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so I, I, I remember the moment very vividly when I first really got uh, hooked on um, your first novel, The Gone Away World, and it was there's a, a scene for those of you who haven't read it, about a third of the way into the book. And the protagonist of the book is sort of talking about the um, very specific conditions under which uh, bruschetta must be enjoyed. And <laughs> as someone who not only loves bruschetta personally, but but has a very kind of passionate feeling feelings about food and drink, um, I, I feel like we we tend to recognize our own. Um, so so do you have it, you know you're you're obviously an, an author and a novelist, um, but. Do you have a, a passion for food? Am I am I making? Oh that God, up? yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 I we cook uh, at home, and we cook we cook sort of anything we can lay our hands on. So for, recently, we've been we've been cooking from uh, Ottolenghi, from which is this wonderful kind of Middle Eastern food. There's a lamb shawarma, which is just incredible, which takes sort of you know you marinate it for 24 hours and so on. And, you know, so and then, but then suddenly we're kind of like, okay, now you know we're going to branch out, and we there's there's London's in a kind of mini craze for Mexican food, so we've we've bought the tacopedia, and now we're kind of we're trying to source ingredients, which are certainly in California when I when I was there a while ago are very easy to find, but in London they're unheard of, and they you know Spanish is not a language that's greatly you know particularly spoken in London. 
I mean, Brits don't generally learn languages other than English, but when they, you know, but when we do learn languages, Spanish isn't one of the ones that you would kind of go to straight away because Spain is just one of the European countries. Oh, obviously, you learn it anyway. Uh, so when we, uh, we're, I'm running around London looking for things, and people are staring at me, kind of, <laughs> you know, like, what the hell are you talking about, and why would you even want one of those? What could you possibly cook with that? Um, so we cook anything, and and obviously, you know, with that then comes a conversation about what you drink with it. Yes, absolutely. I was going to say that, that that story reminded me of being in France uh, in, late in 2016, and we went to there's a we were in um, in Montpellier, and we went to like a huge, huge, huge supermarket. Like for for a, for a country that resisted supermarkets for a really long time, the French have gone all in, at least in in some spaces. And we go to there, and they have one. You know, unsurprisingly for the French, one sort of quote unquote international food aisle, and it's got you know like. <laughs> It's basically got like three items from pretty much any country you can imagine. So I think the Mexican food section had like Taco Bell brand hard taco shells and probably a can of refried beans that had been there for at least three years. I, I didn't look at the expiration date because I was afraid. Right. So I can I can understand the uh, the struggles for sure. Well, exactly. Although I mean, actually, London is one of those places where if you if you look, you will eventually find anything mm -hmm. it's just that you're going to have to go to somewhere which i mean from where i live it'll take me an hour and a half to get there across london you know i'll be i'll be kind of like yep okay this is my pilgrim my food pilgrimage you know <laughs> and actually what's going to happen I, I i i it may have happened already who knows but the, the french seem to discover food in a big way so um like for a long time there was a whole thing between france and italy about like the french sort of saying well you know italian food isn't really all that much and da 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 and the italians saying are you kidding you know it was an italian woman who taught the french about haute cuisine and you know made the whole and so there's a whole kind of cultural tug of war going on there and then about i don't know a few years ago i went to paris and suddenly every third restaurant was an italian restaurant i was like whoa what happened there and it was just italian food had swept through paris in a huge way so i'm guessing that at a certain point there'll be a kind of discovery of mexican food and then if you're you know if you're any kind of french chef at all there'll be like a mexican twist there'll be suddenly ancho you know in mm -hmm. in everything or something uh ancho creme brulee will be a thing there you, you know go. Uh, and it'll be terribly exciting in fact now of course i'm interested by that i'm like well, could you do that anyway yeah well it's a project for uh you know, maybe <laughs> for the weekend how uh, to poison your children <laughs> on the weekend yes exactly yeah um, so you, you mentioned in the we were talking a minute ago about about sort of what to drink with it. And I think one of the things that I find fascinating, um, and this is a, a really broad sweeping cultural generalization, which obviously get us into all kinds of trouble when we make them. But I'm going to do it anyhow, because it's my damn podcast. Um, it, my sense of things is generally that 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 thought um, from turning from food to drink is a really uh, European concept. It's it's not, you know, continental. Also, of course, in the British Isles, that this idea of like we're having a meal so what would i drink with this is just it is not ingrained here in the states the way that it is um in europe and and so how, like is is it something that you just grew up around and it sort of comes second nature or 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 have you is it is it just a like a taken for as a given i don't know i mean i uh that's a really interesting question i guess um i think Growing up in continental Europe, around continental Europe, and going to—if you go even to a, a, you know, a little kind of corner bistro or something, you know—and you're having, you're, you're a kid and you're having the steak frites, and you're saying, you know, I'll have a coke with that, and and the waiter's got this look like, mais non, 
you know, um, <laughs> by all means, have a Coke, tiny Philistine. Uh, but what you should have instead is a glass of mineral water or I will bring you, you know, whatever. Or in fact, what should happen is that your parents should smack you across the back of the head and say, no, you should instead have a glass of water with a little red wine in it. And that will teach you, you know, and so on. And there's a, I mean, we're talking now because I am increasingly aware I am old. We're talking now of, you know, kind of growing up in the 70s and 80s. And incidentally, in which connection, I don't know whether the journey has been the same in the States, but in the UK when I was a kid, food was really not the way it is now. <laughs> and and the, the, the palette of, of things that you could work with in terms of spices was incredibly limited. You know, garlic was still a deeply suspicious foreign thing. You know, um, uh, and if you went for, if, if you wanted curry, you know, that was going to be curry made with curry powder. Um, it, it, it wasn't going to be the kind of subtle you know, distinct flavors. And you certainly weren't going to be getting a question of like, well, are you looking for, you know, a, a, a curry with a kind of Thai inflection or with, a, a, you know, a South Asian Indian inflection, Goan or whatever. You know, it's a completely different ball game now where, you know, uh, uh, all these kind of extraordinary things like, I mean, I don't know, uh, uh, that place on St. Martin's Lane that, um, uh, and I know I can't remember what it's called, but that it's Cuban asian food fusion and you know that would have been back when i was growing up that would have been not only a kind of unthinkable concept but people would have come in and kind of peered at the deep fried squid and kind of gone well i don't know what i think about that (laughs) and they'd probably have left again you know um it's just very kind of it was very conservative and now one of the things that bugs me about our current political situation is that things like italian food are going to get much more expensive um you know, I mean, it's don't get me wrong. It's not the first complaint I have about my country's decisions recently, but uh, it is one that's going to impact me, you know, on a kind of weekly basis. So I'm very conscious of it. Yeah. And I think you're right that that sort of um, explosion of food options is is definitely, a, I think, a really interesting parallel with uh, in particular with the U.S. and with uh, with Great Britain, where, you know, I think in the United States, it was it was less about. I think it was less about sort of the the sort of suspicion of something new and more just about um, a real and maybe this was also going on in Great Britain, but it was really to the way I look at it is sort of a, a reaction to both the rise of sort of industrialization of food. Um, so this idea that like food could be food production and everything could be mechanized and that, um, you know, and it didn't matter where the food came from that, you know, sort of science would would sort of provide all the answer i mean I, I think back of like you know sort of the one of the tropes of like 50s and 60s sci-fi of like you know the meal and a pill and i think like i right. can't think of anything more horrid like there's just to me is <laughs> like that's literally hell to me is the idea that like instead of being able to actually enjoy food that like all i would get would be a pill and i'd be like well i guess i'm alive but like what's the fucking point but 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 in that period a lot a lot of food was terrible yes. i mean this is this is and this is the thing you know um it was very much kind of uh, it's much more appealing when you think that you know the only available fruit with sugar in it is rhubarb to him i'm not a big fan of rhubarb some people love it but but you know if you imagine yourself in a situation where you know you literally you you haven't seen a banana for a decade you know and you're kind of like hey rhubarb you know actually yeah sure just give me a pill you know i can i can understand that you know but then when the explosion of of flavors and possibilities occurs and you've got you know you've got uh, all these different kinds of food cropping up and you know now around the corner from where i live there's a a a little shop and they're selling uh pomelo and uh plantain and you know there's a whole kind of 
stack of, of things which in my childhood would just never have made it onto the shelf in a UK food store. You know, just it just either they would never have come here or if they had, they'd have been in very, very unlikely expensive restaurants or I guess, you know, brought back by people traveling abroad for, you know, to, to make some some uh, some home cooking, you know, and kind of, you know, this is something that, that you know, that I don't know, that your grandmother used to make mm-hmm. me or whatever, you know, that you, but whatever it is, you know, now – and for the time being, you know, you have these incredible possibilities. And you, you go up to, I don't know, this wing up on the North Circular, which is, you know, sort of 35 minutes from where I am. And, and it's a vast Asian supermarket with, again, you know, all the ingredients. If I want to make food from David Thompson's book about Thai street food, that's where I'm going to go, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, because that's that's where all that stuff is. It's, you know, I'm still not going to get it for the most part uh, in my local supermarket. Although actually na- now, you know, kefir lime leaves are in my supermarket. That's, you know, already a change from five years ago. Yeah. I remember uh, I, there's a there's a, a couple uh, several groceries or uh, like Asian grocery stores in the Seattle area that are um, that are a chain. And there's a few of them. And I remember the first time I went into one because they've been around in the Seattle area for about 20 years. And the first time I went into one when I was about – I was a kid. I don't remember exactly how young I was. And I just remember walking in and being like, wow, this is like going to a grocery store in the future. Like there's like yeah. all these ingredients that I've never heard of. Um, most of them don't have any English or very little English on the label. Uh, and But like even at that point, it was kind of clear like, well, this is this is where we're going as a culture is this sort of this sort of globalization of food, which, you know, globalization, I guess, obviously <laughs> another controversial topic these days. Yeah. But I don't think there's anyone who thinks like, man, my – like food was way better when we only got the food that was like happened to grow in the you know three miles certainly radius of our home. certainly nobody who uh, comes from the United Kingdom and remembers the 70s and the 80s would think that the food was better in those I mean you know obviously if you are gonna grow all your own produce and you have the recipes and the skills to make your own really wonderful kind of food from around the world that's a slightly different you know construction but I, I, I live in the city I am not going to be able to grow all the food that I need to eat for a year um, you know, so I'm going to be buying it. So, you know, uh, it, it, I'm imagining myself, um, you know, kind of growing, growing uh, rare spices hydroponically <laughs> because Brexit's happened and I can't get the food anymore. Yeah. You know, um, I, I mean, but, you know, I mean, it, I think that's that's probably a little dramatic, but I, I it, it is, you know, it is a thing, you know, it's throughout my life. There's been a broadening of your kind of food experience in the UK and and. Uh, for the first time now, you know, I worry that that's going to be more difficult. I, and I may be wrong about that, but we'll see. Yeah, I think as you as you sort of alluded to, there's there's some way in which the the aspects of any kind of political change, Brexit, whatever, um, t- you know, potentially tariffs here in the United States, whatever it may be. To me, those the the response to them, even though I think for all of us in some high minded way, it should be this sort of broader like, what are we doing as a country or as a culture or as a world? But there's a way in which when they have that sort of immediate impact on your life, when you no longer can get the ingredients that you like, or you know, here in this country, if we <clears throat> deport um, 10 million people Everyone. who are heavily involved in food production on all levels, and then grocery, the cost of everything you get at the grocery store goes up by a third. I think yeah. people will take notice. I think those are the, even if the bigger things should yeah. matter more, those are the things that people notice. Those are the know. things that hit you where you live. Of course they are. When it changes what you're eating, then it's a fundamental change in every moment of your life. I mean, and and don't get me wrong. I mean, I have a, one of the things that happens has happened to me around the kind of Brexit discussion is that I've actually lost the ability to be high-minded. Like, I, I, can do, I can do critical thought and analysis and cogent explanations and whatever, but actually I'm just in a 
rage. I've become a terrible human being. I'm just like, no, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And I see myself in kind of, you know, 40 years time with my cane still banging the floor and kind of, and I'm still angry and I'll still be angry in another 20 years. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's going to be fun for everybody. <laughs> I'm sure your kids, kids are very excited about that. They're, they're, seriously, they're already, I'm teaching them kind of, you revanchist chanting we're going to do we're we're going to be kind of standing on the shores of of the east coast of the united kingdom sort of holding our hands out and and begging europe to build a bridge or something (laughs) not just a not just a tunnel hell no we need we're gonna we're gonna need a big fat land bridge like you know five or six miles wide so that you can no longer deny the connection between because that's the the psychological basis of all this is that 22 mile stretch of water which you can swim across for goodness sake and and but because of that 22 mile stretch of water we are fundamentally not connected to continental europe and the language that brits use to describe europe continental europe like we're not part of the same continent yeah kind of are you know, <laughs> there isn't there isn't a fault line that runs down the english channel particularly you know um yeah. so yeah you know so um so turning from from food to to wine a little bit um what's what's Buying wine in in London, like what are what's what do you see on the shelves a lot? What is it that it's that actually the gravitate towards? It's actually fantastic. Um, uh, it, there's there's a lot of it, and there's well, because Brits love their booze. There's a lot of it, and there's a lot of variety, and it's very interesting. I mean, so I have there's a there's a kind of wine warehouse called Majestic, which has a bunch of branches near where I live, and I take the car, and you can kind of get a mixed case, and uh, it's not. Uh, absurdly cheap, but it's not expensive. And you kind of walk around and point and say, I, I will try one of those and I will try one of those. And what I like this, will I like this? And they're very helpful, you know, and it's great fun. Um, and uh, then obviously, you know, you have, we have a thriving restaurant culture at the moment. So like I, uh, there's a restaurant down the road from me um, uh, and uh, they have a kind of beloved wine of the month every so often and they you know so i'm discovering these things it's an italian place and they had malintopo which i'd never had before and it turns out to be absolutely delicious um and i'm sitting there kind of going wow I, this is a wine that you know i've never come across mm-hmm. and you know and there's the patron kind of with this little smile kind of like yes i have educated you uh you know in something that is dear to my heart which is fantastic you know and of course they, they choose the wine they choose the food so it all goes together i mean you asked me about this earlier i think the the obsession with with matching things you you can overdo it but i also think like i mean you know till we were talking about uh spicy food earlier and you know obviously there are i think particularly with strong flavors and you know spices and so on you can have a kind of thing where you go actually what i have just put in my mouth has made that wine taste horrible yes you know you can definitely have that experience even with a wine that you love you know and so it's great when you find something that works well like um we have there's a chain of of um, Argentinian steakhouses in London called Gaucho, and they have some wonderful Argentinian wine. Um, and one of them is a Tapis Reserva Chardonnay, which tastes like it's kind of rich and beautiful, like a Merlot. So it's it's wonderful. I really like it. Um, you know, and that's a wine that you could probably drink with quite spicy food and certainly with pepper and whatever. Um, and it's delicious. And then there's another there's something else that I I um, mistakenly we were having a curry at home the other day and we had a, a bottle of something open and I was like no this is this is wrong it is definitely wrong and I must immediately put this back in the fridge and pretend I did not do that yeah um, you know and it's just that but I mean so the experience I guess to come back to your question the experience of buying wine in London is great you know you can go you know to, to somewhere which is basically 
kind of consumer wholesale, or you can go to some frightfully upmarket wine shop and say, you know, I need a glass, I, I need a, a case of uh, Benjamin Zadarek Vitovska, and you know, it will magically appear on your doorstep. Yeah, well, that's a those are those are two nice solutions to have. Although I would imagine yeah. the the former comes in handy a lot more often than the latter. Oh, yes, yes. Although I do, the reason I mentioned that wine is because I do have a particular weakness for it because we got it um, in a restaurant uh, like 18 months ago or two years ago or something. Um, they gave it to us as a, a, they gave us a couple of glasses, you know, kind of like, you must try this. So we did. And uh, there's a whole, of course, there's a whole narrative that goes with it. It's like, this is an orange wine. It's made in the in the style that you would use to make a red wine, but you use white grapes and there's a whole thing. And, you know, and so I'm enormously impressed by narrative. Yeah. You know, and I'm fascinated. So, you know, so I'm drinking this thing and already the wine has a leg up. You know, it's like, this is, this is, this is special. And then I loved it and it goes very well. It was, it's, it was, again, it was Middle Eastern food. So, and it works very well with kind of those smoky aubergine kind of flavors and so on. And, and I was just blown away by it. And so then, I, then of course, I wanted to buy some. And I was like, oh, it's expensive. Right. <laughs> yes. Okay. I understand now. Yeah. Um, you know, <clears throat> so, I mean, you, you know, you, you, you kind of, those are the adventures of wine. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, is a, it is a sort of a, one of those sad but, but perhaps unexpected or unsurprising <laughs> realities that whatever you find that you love the most inevitably costs twice as much as you wanted to. I, do you know, I have to say, I am. this is one of the things I love about going to this place uh, that I was talking about. With, uh, it's not always the case. I, I, I mean, you're of course, you're absolutely right. There are some amazing wines which you kind of go, oh, that's too much. Um, but one of the things, so I used to drink, having having been uh, dismissive of Brits and Spanish, I, I, I am now, one of my absolute favorite wines of all time is uh, Ardanza, um, uh, uh, from the Rioja Alta. And... Um, it is absolutely delicious, and it's been uh, my family's been drinking it. It's sort of you know I've grown up with it to a great extent as a sort of you know staple red wine. This is a really wonderful, spicy, um, zinging red wine, and you know, um, and and as with as with all really good red wine, it goes down gratefully, and you just think, oh yes, I'll have another glass of that. Um, and uh, and but you know the trouble is that gradually with the growth of the food culture in the UK and the awareness of of um, wines and so on, people in the UK became aware of this wine, and the guys who make it became aware that it was. Uh, very very good and that they could be charging more money for it and so they have and now it's a little bit more pricey than than i would like it to be so i'm constantly on the lookout for wines to kind of fill that gap and the one i have at the moment is um this uh this kind of mini tuscan dogajolo um which is again which is from this place majestic that i go to and and it's it's frankly just undervalued <laughs> you know it's like yes this is clearly very good and it would appear that nobody has realized quite how nice it is <laughs> yeah that's a nice um, that's a nice it, spot to be in yeah no exactly and you know and then in in six months time the, the they will irritatingly they will realize that they've been underpricing this thing and i'll have to go off and find something else there you go. well that's the that's the joy of discovery you know you mentioned it is you mentioned the sort of the story of 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 wines, and and obviously as a as an author yourself, I, I imagine stories are kind of um, very powerful, and they, they're what draw you to. I would imagine a lot of things, and and that's certainly how I would describe sort of my my own connection to wine. Is that I mean I care about quality, and I care about lots of other things in it um, in a professional capacity. But really, in the end, what what gets me excited about a wine is when it has a story to tell, whether that's the story of of the winemaker or the place, the grapes, the 
history, the whatever, and, and wine for me is the way to explore a lot of different things, a lot of parts of the world and of culture that I, I wouldn't have. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I think that that's something that, that is certainly true about other, you know, certainly can be true about food, can be true about other drink as well. And, and maybe just wine is where I see it most, uh, most evidently because of its sort of long history and, and really kind of, um, it's power culturally. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm completely, I'm a sucker for narrative in that context. And as I said, I mean, you know, it actually, it, 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 and I mean, I believe this happens to everybody, but it influences, you know, I guess how I experience the wine, you know. Um, and I mean, you mentioned uh, Bruschetta and the Gonaway world earlier. And I think in the same section, there's a reference to Innocenti uh, Vino Nobile di Montepulciano. Mm-hmm. And the reason that it's there is because I was in Tuscany and we went to the Innocenti vineyard and we looked around and we were conducted around by the guy who runs it, which was, and I think still is, Vittorio Innocenti. And he was, if I get this right, he was a philosophy professor at an Italian university. And at a certain point, he stopped doing that and he returned to the um, family vineyard to make the wine. And he takes an extremely purist attitude only the most traditional methods only the simplest ways only the best ways to produce what he thinks is the classic vino nobile and um uh you know he frowns not severely or unpleasantly but he frowns nonetheless on on some of the other uh, you know uh, cantina where they're making things in different ways and whatever and i'm completely sold you know, this this is a guy. You, you can see him as as the guy holding back the sea, or you can see him as the the kind of plucky, sort of I don't know the the the, the last resistance fighter or whatever you want to see. As far as I'm concerned, he's he's just right there, and and therefore the wine is clearly the best of the Vino Nobile. A lot of people, you know would put forward other contenders for that. Um, and, and indeed, those contenders are absolutely excellent. But narratively, for me, that's the one that holds the prize. Sure. And, and like anything else, you know, the we only I think it's always a mistake to think about only using, say, sense of taste to assess wine. I think there's there's, you know, it, the point of wine to me is, um, you know, is is about engaging with, you know, as much of as much of us as it, as we can and so if the if that sort of yeah if that narrative uh, conceit if that the the character of the person or people making the wine is is part of the deal um if if you care about that and not everyone yeah. does and that's oh. and that's fine too and not every bottle of wine has a great story behind it sometimes it's just these grapes were grown and fermented and put in a bottle and like that's cool like sometimes that's that's, <laughs> that's all you know. that's all so good no and and of course i i can't remember who it was but i was reading a a wine writer talking about wine and someone said you know what's the best glass of wine you'd ever had uh, and he said well look you know actually i've had all the kind of these fantastic vintages that people speak of in odd tones but the reality of the situation is that the best glass of wine in the world is the one that you have when you've just made a long journey to see old friends and you're sitting in the garden and you're eating whatever cheeses and meat and you know on, and the sun's shining down and you're happier than you've ever been and someone brings you a glass of cold wine or you know whatever it is and that's wine in its perfect context you know uh, and actually i would rather have that glass of wine than the absolutely impossibly beautiful vintage in some you know drafty hospitality suite and that's i think that's absolutely true and it's how it should be you know yeah, I mean it's it it is yeah like I said it's meant to it's meant to engage us on all levels and not just on that sort of like well this comes from the single most expensive uh, you know the the most uh, preeminent prestigious vineyard in pick your place right and, right, and right, has exactly. you know all that so um so I want shifting gears a little bit to to talk maybe a little bit about about writing because I think um you know 
writing is something that I do, but in a very different way. And I, but I'm very curious. You know, we, we talked about that passage in in Gone Away World, and and there's I think a, there's a really beautiful passage in Tiger Man where you talk about uh, the tea that that Shola has brought in, and there and um, it's being sort the, of the assessed. Ritual, yeah, yeah, it, well, the, yeah, the ritual of preparation and sort of the 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 description of flavor. And I think one of the challenges for I think a lot of writers, whether they're writing, uh, whether they're specifically food writers or whether they're just kind of incorporating that, is is avoiding what I would call almost like the Proustian, like incredibly florid prose, which I mean, I guess there's a certain majesty to that, but, but how do you kind of walk that line of being descriptive without just kind of turning it into page after page of, I don't know, mush. I think you have to be, on the one hand, you have to be shameless. You know, uh, if, if the description is, requires um, the, you know, that you say that it tastes of strawberries and, you know, it, you've got to find a way of saying that it tastes of strawberries. It doesn't sound ridiculous. On the other hand, um, with it's funny. I was having this conversation in another context the other day. But I'll come back to that. So, um, it's also about tone and mood. You know, um, with Tiger Man, one of the things about the central character uh, Lester Ferris is that he uh, does not express his thoughts, and we, because we're spending time sort of inside outside his head, he does. We don't get his thoughts expressed for us in. Uh, two florid terms. He's he's a guy who would never speak of uh, vast construction. He would always speak of a big wall. Um, so, you know, uh, and that's not about uh, a limit to his intellect. It's about a perception of the world that doesn't require those more florid constructions. So when he's talking about tea, in the first con, in the first place, the um, the uh, any strong, unusual description that he uses comes through very hard because you don't get it from him a lot. Mm. Um, and in the second, um, I, I was pushing him towards a kind of of austerity all the time, and you know, and so even there, you know, he's going to be saying it's tangy or it's you know he could taste the tannin. There, are, there are always kind of bitter flavors, metallic flavors that he's talking about, um, you know, and he's talking about, I think there's, there's a sort of gunpowder tea thing going on, you know, and, and it's very, it's very specific to him. It's not, I mean, in terms of writing, writing's always a piece of sleight of hand. So, you know, it just so happens that on the day that we are discussing this man who lives in that quite circumscribed, deliberately quite ashy, slightly bitter but not he's not embittered he just you know the world presents him with quite difficult choices the tea that they're drinking you know it's it's not uh some kind of uh incredibly involved uh jasmine flower or oolong or something like that it's very kind of um it might even be an oolong i can't remember in the book but it, you know but the point is the experience is very um solid and that's you know on any other day that we might have visited them, they might have been drinking something completely different and it wouldn't have worked tonally with who he was. So there's a kind of cheat going on there. Um, and the thing that the, the other context that I was talking about earlier was I was discussing this um, with a couple of other writers about the use of language in, in terms of period. So if you're writing about 1920, you know, how do you, do you use 1920s language all the time? And the thing is that it seems to me Obviously, there's an argument for authenticity, but it seems to me that sometimes your authenticity is going to be so jarring that you, if you use it, people will apply a modern perception 
to the subtext of a given term, and the consequence will be that they place a modern interpretation. They can't stop seeing uh, a 1920s character in a, uh, a present-day light. Um, and, you know, and the same is true with, with the kind of flavor thing. It's, in writing, it's always got to be the experience you're describing is always being filtered through the narrative and the character, and the illusion that you have is, is you know, that you're getting a description of the food or the wine and so on. And of course that's true, but the reality is that that experience is reflecting the character to the audience. So you get an in insight into the character from their reaction to and their description of the food. So it's a con, it's an important one, and it's not a, not a dishonest one, but you're being sneakily directed. Yeah. Well, and it does seem like, especially with, with Lester Ferris, yeah, you get that sense that, that thinking about the, the thing he's eating or drinking is a little bit of a foreign concept to him, that the idea of sort of that, yeah. that it could be, that it could, I mean, you know, to kind of come back to an earlier topic, that the idea that, that, that there's something to be to be noted, to be thought about beyond just sort of like, I am hungry and now I am eating, or I want the sort of, I want the comfort of tea or the, or the caffeine or whatever. Um, it, it is, it kind of, and obviously it's sort of, uh, you know, sort of starts the book off on its um kind of you know narrative track as well um sort of right yes. in that moment which is um, of course part of what makes the the specific type of tea particularly appropriate but but yeah i mean and it's later in the same book you know there's a there's a kind of banquet there's a sort of end of the world party um and there you've got uh, a great kind of i think it's pulled pork there's a kind of real sort of barbecue feast going on and again it's not nothing is coincidental you know the fact that that is you know that's that kind of food it's finger food it's it's sticky and it's you know um it's it's comfort food it's luxurious you put it in your hands and eat it and it's very physical and then we're moving from that into uh what's almost kind of romantic moment between two characters and so on you, you know and at the same time you know you've got in the background the fact that this is the beginning of everything going wrong in a way you know um it's uh, as I say, nothing's coincidental. Yeah. Um, so one one of the to me at least one of the common threads in all your books is is sort of this um, element of of evil and and it takes its own um, form in each book. It's kind of this corporate and bureaucratic evil in the Ganoi world. It's it's a very kind of evil villain, almost kind of Bondian in Angel Maker, and then it's sort of this more. I guess the evils of the modern world in Tiger Man, kind of just multinationalism and all the things that we sort of allowed to be done or, or that are done in kind of this nebulous, like, well, that's just, yeah, let's, we'd rather not talk about that kind of way. The under the carpet of modern life. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and very specifically, I, when I was, uh, when I was writing Tiger Man, what I was thinking about, my wife had been working for a human rights organization called Reprieve. Um, she was there for a long time. And one of the things that they, dealt with was the British government's involvement with Diego Garcia mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and torture and rendition flights and so on and I you know uh, having seen through the keyhole as it were kind of you know some of the stuff that they were dealing with um, I, I was that sense of the creation of zones where the rules did not apply was very strong and to me that's you know and it was sort of Casablanca like you know kind of situation where anything goes and obviously in that situation you know you you've got narratives galore so it's a very attractive it's a horrible environment in a way but it's also a very attractive one for a writer yeah and and i think what what is what is it was interesting to me about about the sort of the juxtaposition of those various evils is is sort of the way in which 
maybe the way in which the sort of the the protagonists interact with them and i think like you know it's sort of the in the in your i think in your first two books there's a there's definitely a you know there's a sense of overcoming evil or at least averting evil and in tiger man it's sort of like well yeah it's still <laughs> it's it, it's it's a very you know it's a very um i just actually just finished reading a, a sci-fi trilogy by a chinese author um which is uh I forget what the what the actual title for the trilogy is, but uh, the first book is called The Three Body Problem. They're brilliant books, right, really, really fascinating. And I I need to read that because I I have a copy somewhere, and everyone keeps telling me it's amazing, and I haven't done it yet because I'm a terrible human being. Um, yes, <laughs> it, it is definitely get... great. They're they're uh, amazing books, but it, but they're they're another they're sort of a series with a very let's say um, you could call it a mixed ending. Bittersweet, I guess, is maybe a better term. Um, and uh, and right. so you know, I I wonder, you know, obviously, you know, growing as you, as one grows up and gets older and faces the realities of the world the sort of that sort of yearning for the the ending where good triumphs over evil and um everyone is happy you know i'm not sure even as a kid you ever any you most you know sort of intelligent children sort of realize that that's at least somewhat a lie but but it doesn't stop people from kind of um rooting for it and i, I was just i just thought of this because i was just reading people's i was reading some reviews of i always like to read reviews but only after i finish a book um and so i was reading some reviews of this trilogy that i I'd finished and taught some people's thoughts on message boards because apparently i had nothing better to do with my time and um and there were some people who just like couldn't they just were so embittered by the fact that the book didn't end in like a happy uplifting tone and i'm wondering right. like did you face that dude do, do you do people like man i tiger man would have been way better if like everyone everything had ended uh, ended you know un- it, 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 it all been perfect happy. yeah i i i mean I, People don't get cross with me, um, uh, but is that just I because do... you're British and people kind of assume that you know you're going to write a dour ending? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I mean, so uh, with Tiger Man specifically, because the ending is is mixed, as you say. Um, uh, what I got was my agent when he first read the book calling me up and going, "No!" <laughs> um, and everybody has that reaction. They're kind of they're like, "Couldn't it be? Couldn't it be okay?" And actually, um, Patrick Walsh, my agent, is is still still convinced that everything turns out all right in the end. Um, that that it's all a ruse. Um, uh, and he's very firm about that. He will not let me explain why that's not the case or whether that's not the case. I should say. Um, uh, uh, so you know. Um, with with Gone My World, um, it's interesting. You have a happy ending up to a point, except that they then set off into an unknown of such extraordinary magnitude. They really have. It's really unclear, in a way, whether human civilization, as we understand it, will survive. It's unclear whether uh, what it means to be human is about to be altered beyond any imaginable, uh, you know, kind of stretch from where we stand right now. Um, you know, so that's, I mean, uh, on one hand, they won, but on the other, you know, it's now a pretty extraordinary situation. Um, with Angel Maker, I just gave myself a happy ending. I, uh, Funnily enough, that book actually started uh, when I first started writing it. Um, there was quite a strong possibility that the main character was going to die at the end. Mm. Um, and... Uh, by the time I got to it, I was I'd worked out all these ways he could escape that terrible fate, whatever. And finally, I, I was like, okay, this 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 actually this whole thread has to come out. Um, it just has to be okay. And so, but again, it's interesting. There's a sense of work unfinished that you know they they sail off into the distance, but there is very much the implication that they will need to continue to engage in acts of revolution in order to you know in order for the world to continue strong. You know, there's 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 never. Uh, I don't have the sort of final ending 
uh, kind of, I don't know, I was going to say the gene, but I don't have the, the final ending vibe really in my books. They, they tend to be, they tend to finish and then it's like, and now, you know, the next thing will happen and they are well prepared to it. But basically they've leveled up, you know, and there's yes. still going to be another boss. There's always another boss. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's not necessarily a bad thing either. You know, there's the, uh, there's there's the possibility that actually, if you haven't got something to you know to push against, you know, what what are you anymore? Um, and with the new book, which comes out uh, in the UK in in uh, I think autumn, and I don't know quite when when it's coming out in the US, but I would hope it would be then or soon after. Which is Nomon. They uh, that 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 whole thing. You will be revisiting this conversation about, you know, what what the ending means and, you know, how, how happy is the ending and so on. Uh, um, but I think in a way it is my most positive ending. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so I, I had a sense that maybe you were going to ask me whether as I was getting older, my endings were becoming more equivocal. Um, and, you know, and, and that's definitely, I sort of see why that would be the case for a lot of people. And, you know, but I've become, I basically, uh, 2016, 2017, I have found, well, 2017 is young. 2016, I was crushingly horrific as far as I was concerned in, in political terms, in global geopolitical terms. Uh, and I have become just, I just, um, Joe Hill said he thought it had broken me in the most positive possible way, um, uh, uh, and, I, and I think he was right. But I, you know, I feel I don't feel broken at all. I feel lit on fire. Um, I'm so angry and so kind of bewildered and determined to to reshape how people think about the world now. Uh, I can't. I mean, I can't begin to explain it. <laughs> Just like wow. Well, I think there's, I think there's maybe two things there because I sort of, in a, in my own way, have I think I kind of very much understand what you're saying and, and share it. I think for many of us, there was sort of this, as it turns out, probably um, naively optimistic belief that you know, obviously, lots of even before 2016, there were lots of things that were wrong in the world. There were lots of there was lots bad, but for people of our sort of political belief and general view of the world things were also clearly getting better as discussed you was really easy to find all kinds of food in london um and you know it's just it was a it was a a, a, and and to see not only that that things could get worse but the book could get worse for let's say incredibly stupid human reasons and not like much larger than human like natural disaster reasons or things like that that would have been horrifying but would have felt less I don't know. It would, right. it would have been less of a sense of betrayal in the sense of like, how could people be so dumb? Uh, anyhow, it's 12, not a politics 12 podcast. Ago, Twelve months ago, um, you know, asteroid strikes were high on my list of terrifying scenarios. Mm-hmm. You know, now they've been pushed down. It's not that they've become less likely. It's just that they've been pushed down the list by a large number of other things that are more terrifying and much more likely. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I had a conversation with a friend of mine a little while ago where we were talking about uh, what he called uh, two-inch wide, two-mile deep risks. I used to be worried about two-inch wide, two-mile deep risks. Now, in the aftermath of, of Brexit and, and the, the election of your, your new president, who is a curious fellow, uh, <laughs> it feels to me that there are, that there are a, a bunch of kind of six-meter-wide, two-mile deep risks that I now have to contend with. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely sort of changed. Uh, you know, I live in Seattle, and and there's always been this talk of 
um, you know, this we're overdue for some massive earthquake. And, you know, it used to be yeah. a thing that I was worried about. And it's not, as you said, it's not that I'm not worried about it, but there is a way in which you look at a thing like that in the, in the modern, in the current context and you go, well, I can't do a damn thing about that. I mean, I can try and have, <laughs> you know, water and food and stuff in my house and, you know, be vaguely aware of it. But like, for the most part, like I, th- that is beyond yeah, anything is I can beyond. do to control it. And so let's worry about all this other stuff that's going on that I can at least theoretically do something about. And, and maybe when we get all that under control, then I can go back to just worrying about earthquakes. Um, yeah. Plus also there are people in the world who are, you know, paid and empowered to some extent to worry about earthquakes. That's true. You know, um, but all of us have to fix the other stuff. Yeah. Um, one one last question for you, um, and it's it's a it's a kind of the inverse of the question about evil. It's a question about about protagonists, about I guess heroes, or or however you want to talk about it. Um, you know, I think what I what I love about again, I love about your books is that in each of them, the sort of the protagonist, um, and I guess you could maybe argue there's several protagonists in a couple of the books, but but they they there is an act of of self-discovery that goes on um, over the course of the book. And it's obviously bent in a lot of ways by the things that are happening to them that are outside of their control. And, you know, at Angel Maker, it's just Bork kind of getting thrust into the middle of this whole controversy, but he, or this whole um, conspiracy, I guess, or, or ongoing yeah. uh, set of events, but he's also connected to it in his own way that he's not even aware of. I think one of the, which strikes me, one of the challenges as a, as an author is probably finding ways to sort of bend events to, to prompt those, that growth in characters and to tie it into things that maybe are in their past without it feeling too contrived. And I feel like you do a very good job. It's, it's always what's to me like you walk that line very well that, that when you go back at the end of the book and whether it's a surprise unveiling or you just, the book kind of unfolds and you go back and you look and you kind of see, okay, this all does sort of make sense. Is that all, is that just, you know, is that just planning? Is that storyboarding? Is that laying it out? Or, or is there a way in which you kind of, you even don't see that all coming when you start to write the book and then it kind of comes together as you're writing it? There's a, I mean, uh, I always kind of say, and it's, it's, it's a little bit pat, but it's definitely true that being a novelist is like being a standout comic, but you get like 18 months to be funny the first night, you know, so you get to do it over and over and over. Um, and no one ever hears about the ones that aren't right. Um, and so, but I mean, yeah, so it, to a degree it's planning. I mean, actually more than that, it's about, uh, I guess, co-evolution. So for me, the... I begin the process with whatever the spark of the story is, be it a character who's, you know, kind of comes with their own little bit of context or, you know, a kind of what if scenario or, you know, just whatever the idea is sort of overarching frame in some way. It all has to evolve from the same place. So when, you know, when you get uh, Joe Spork, the main character in Angel Maker, uh, and he's, he's kind of this guy who must become the gangster, um, the reason he has to become the gangster and the the whole um, setup, it all has to tie together from base, so that when you come to deliver the kind of the the final moment, every single decision has somehow prepped for that. And that's not it, it is a question of planning, but it's a question of always when you're looking for a way in which to make someone turn in one direction rather than the other the thing that you choose to to twist gravity for them is always going to be something that ties back into the main thread Mm -hmm. um you know so uh, and character plot 
uh, and tone and emotion and so on, all those things evolve together. The world, uh, you know, the world of Angel Maker is designed for Joe Spork to be in. Joe Spork is the guy who inhabits this kind of narrative. That's, you know, he's defined by the world and the action and the enemies and so on. They all are they all conspire to reflect each other so it's like the thing i was saying earlier actually uh, um uh, about the experience of of the sergeant and so on at lester ferris and tiger man drinking tea and you know then you know the, the description of bruschetta and the the, the innocenti wine it's always about what does the object the character is interacting with what does the decision they make tell you about the character what is the character's existing mass do to distort the universe to tell you about the universe what you know these things constantly play off one another and so you begin with sort of three interwoven strands and then you go all the way through and as that as you go through the writing process you add more strands and each time you go back and you make sure that they weave in all the way through so what you end up with from your three strands is a tapestry and it looks as if it was created from whole cloth but it's all threads and the threads all you know, the threads make a pattern because that was what they always were being made to do throughout the process. Oh, very cool. Well, that is, I can't think of a better way to leave it there. Um, Nick, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And very much looking thank forward you, to uh, Nomen uh, when that comes out. Thank you. And, and it's been great fun. Thanks so much to Nick Harkaway for joining me on Disgorged. He's on Twitter at Harkaway, online at nickharkaway.com. And you can find his novels at bookstores everywhere. And keep your eyes peeled for his latest book, Nomen, coming out later in 2017. As for me, I'm on social media at Zjebal, that's Z-G-E-B-A-L-L-E, and online at vinetrainings.com, that's Vine with a V. Thanks so much for listening to Disgorged, and cheers!